0: Welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city, or on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners, or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter, Saren Kaster, also a couple of very special guests. We are eventually going to, uh, later on in the show, get in to talk about what's happening in California. Stefan is exasperated and inflamed about that. It is... It is a travesty. It's a travesty. Stefan is so inflamed, he's uh, intrigued by his own exasperation. <laughs> and, uh, we're, and then we're going to get into Chris Turner's uh, take on the leaders debate this week, and also the uh, nature of resistance and the line between pragmatism and integrity. But first, and Kaster, please introduce our two excellent guests.
1: Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, We're going now to be doing uh, one of my favorite things we do on this Green Majority show every once in a while, which is uh, a good friend of mine from the CBC connects us with talented filmmakers, and we get to discuss uh, some of the new CBC materials that are coming out today. It is my pleasure to introduce to you, uh, returning to the program, actually, filmmaker Andrew Gregg. Welcome to the Green Majority.
2: I'll try, Sorry. I'll try again. Okay. <laughs> that was my bad. I turned you off
1: by accident. <laughs> Andrew Gray. Hi. And uh, welcoming <laughs> to the program for, the, I believe, the first time, <laughs> despite my confusion from seeing your face 20 minutes ago, uh, May Diane Andrade. Is that correct? May Diane. May My mother's name is Diane. Excuse me. It's very confused. <laughs> so, what we're going to be talking about today is First Animals. And that's the title of the documentary, um, but it's also quite literal in this case. We're talking about the very, very beginnings of life. Um, I would like to start uh, with you you. Uh, my da- uh, I'm going to screw it up. You I'm sorry. It back and forth. <laughs> uh, I'm going to start with you because uh, what we really need to do here is start with the biology. And that is where you approach this evolutionary biologist from the University of Toronto. And uh, I'm going to ask you to just lay the groundwork as far as a couple of the big words we're going to need to understand to have the the just the context for what we're going to be talking about. So I'm going to ask you first to... Uh, just define the Cambrian explosion. Tell us what we're talking about there. Um, tell us a little bit about what we mean by first animals.
3: Okay, so the Cambrian explosion is literally the explosion of life on Earth. And about 540 million years ago, we look through the fossil record and see that suddenly we watch the appearance of these incredibly complex animals. Uh, Previously, we didn't really see this kind of complexity. We didn't see the ecological complexity or the structural complexity that we see in these organisms that we can find in the Burgess Shale, which is a fossil bed that is sort of the gem of Canadian paleontology. Now what do we mean by first animals? We mean animals that look like they have the types of structures that we now identify as being unique to different animal groupings. And all of those groupings were present in this strata of rock. That are, that's 540 million years old. So this is the origins of the types of life forms that we now see as animals that are, you know, insects that are mammals that are vertebrates like things like us with, with backbones.
1: All right. and uh, so with that context about what the film is about I just want to switch uh, now to uh, Andrew uh, to talk a little bit about you're the the filmmaker on this piece um, talk a little bit about the shale from that point of view where are we looking what type of environment are we looking at so I think uh, I think many people have heard that the Burgess shale is something that people have heard of I'm not sure how many people have actually seen it uh, as the filmmaker here uh, describe the landscape what uh, what type of environment are we looking at where are these uh, scientists working
2: well if I could if I could just back up just a second his, historically um, the original Burgess Shale site was found uh, in 1909 by a paleontologist from the Smithsonian. It's uh, the, the way the story goes is he heard there were fossils up in this part of Yo- what would become Yoho National Park and he was riding his horse and his horse kicked a piece of shale and the fossil fell out. So that's that's the beginning of this whole thing and and at the time um they were able to they realized what they had was very special because these were wild-looking little critters, right? They're just wild-looking. The um Actual animals from the Cambrian explosion were trapped in mudslides under the under the at the bottom of the ocean That hardened into shale and then you've got the fossils that we're finding today You open it up like a picture book except with each layer of shale You don't know what you're gonna get. It's kind of like a grab bag, right? So uh, fast forward to today um Jean-Bernard Caron from the Royal Ontario Museum and also from U of T, um, he's been working in a couple of new uh, fossil quarries about 40 kilometers from the original Burgess Shale site, but still following that line of shale all the way through the mountains. And they, this summer we were with them in 2018, they took out six tons of new fossils. So um, every time they go out and find a new quarry, they're finding new animals, they're finding other other examples of animals they've already found, but it's uh, filling in the blanks of a very big story. So what we did with the film was just try to tell the importance of, of, of these fossils, but also to be there for the moment of discovery of a whole bunch of new ones, and that was that was really fun. So you're about 7,000 feet up in the Rockies, and uh, where we shot the film was actually in Kootenai National Park, which is adjacent to Yoho, where the original Burgess Shell is.
1: And uh, so, one of the first things that we learn about, and one of the first things that that we learn about through a little bit through your uh, eyes, is uh, um, was the connection there. Well, like we're looking at all, we're, we're the the. It begins, and we're starting to pop open some some rocks, and we're discovering things. And uh, you articulated my thoughts as we were going, which was, "Oh, this looks so neat. What am I looking at?" <laughs> so, I, what I was wondering if it, can you talk a little bit about um, just like you know? I think sometimes people see things like that, or even just an image, or maybe you know, I'm on the public transit and I'm seeing a poster for the ROM, and you see these images, um, and you, you know what they are. But I think what's really mysterious and 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 I think deserves um, some discussion is what really, like you can really learn a lot. And that was really one of the things I was reminded of. I have some casual knowledge about these topics. Uh, but one of the things I really got an appreciation for from walking, watching the documentary was I didn't realize the amount of things you could learn. Like I, when, I, when I figured people were doing this, this work or the paleontology, I, I, I didn't know that they could get so much information out of it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Just first of all, starting with what are people actually looking at? What are we looking
3: at when we're going through that? And then
1: how do we get from that to this body of knowledge
3: we've created? That is the incredible part, I think, about the way that Andy captured this on film, is that he does give you that whole richness. So you're in the mountains, you crack open a rock, and inside is sort of the carbonized remains uh, impression of the animal that died in that mudflow. And you can see some structures, um, you can see its orientation, you can see what died with it. And that's the amazing part. You can capture the richness of the ecological context, not just, oh, it had this bit of uh, you know proto backbone here or the eyes were there you've got the ecological context. And then on top of it, if you add the technology of all these other scientists, you can actually analyze what type of chemicals are present in that fossil. And in one place in the film, you'll see an amazing representation of eggs, um, actually uh, a a female that was holding and protecting her eggs. So you're seeing parental care, you're seeing what they ate, you're seeing what ate them, and you're seeing it all together in this structure because you're drawing in all these different scientists who have all these different perspectives on what you're finding in The Rock. I think one of the things that I even... I still
1: even had, I think, a little bit of wondering about at the end of the film, um, which was, like... it, it wasn't really brought up, and I'm not sure there's a proper way to address it, but perhaps, as the, from the biology point of view, you can tell us, which is sort of like as a casual observer, I'm kind of like, how did this something like this go so long without discovery? <laughs> like it was sort of I'm, I'm always amazed how, like, how is there a new discoveries all the time? It feels like we've been at this a really long time. It, maybe both of you can take a shot at that from different perspectives, but just about like where
2: <laughs> how does this how do we keep finding new things? Where is all this stuff coming from? i think I think the way to think about it is each, is each time they open up a new quarry. Of fossils. You're looking at a new community. Um, so, uh, 40 miles to the north, 40 kilometers to the north, in Yoho, that's one community that was found there. When you go into a new quarry and open that up, it's another community. So, um, in the film, and I don't think I'm giving away any spoilers because it's been all over the place. But we found a brand new species of animal that nobody had ever seen before. And, and not only that, it's huge. Most of the fossils are about the size of your thumb, and this is like two hands. It's it's, it's massive. And it was a major predator, you know, and, and, and to your point, because how come we didn't know about this before? <laughs> but um, um, it, 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 it's, it's quite something, though, to be there when a discovery like that happens, because that's what you're thinking. You, you're, you're saying, no, you're kidding me. You're, not, you're kidding me. We've seen this before somewhere, right? And I go, nope, nope, this is brand new. This is brand new to science. So it just makes you wonder what else is in there.
1: Well, and it was well, the other thing that was really amazing to me, and maybe this is just a trick of the filmmaking, but for him to, uh, for I'm sorry, uh, 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 Jean, 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 Bernard. Bernard, Jean Bernard, yeah, uh, was just like, no, 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 we've never seen this before. Like, did he
3: actually just know that off the top of his head? So that's the other thing that I'd, I'd point out is that the expertise behind these things, we look at it, and of course, Andy makes it all look very intuitive, and you get to see the animation, and you get to see the way that the artists have portrayed it, so it looks like, oh, okay, that makes sense. When we're in the film, and when we're up on that site, they'll crack open a rock, and I even say this in the film, everyone goes, oh, because there's something in there. Mm-hmm. Jean Bernard comes over and goes, "No, we got 10 of those." <laughs> or he comes over and says, "That's interesting. Number it. Make sure you preserve it. Mm-hmm. This is what we want." And it's that it's that expertise that he has from looking at thousands of these fossils and being able to recognize, "Okay, this one's twisted, but I still know what it is." Mm. And and that's part of the reason too that we we there's so much still to discover. Is first of all, it's hard to get to these places. There's a relatively small number of people who have that depth of expertise when they know what they're looking at, because everything's a choice. You crack open a rock and you if you crack this one so that it look you can look at this piece, piece number two is gone because you cracked it in half to get access to piece number one.
1: Yeah. I, I want to spend we're we're a little bit over halfway through and I want to spend the majority of the rest of our time talking about this discovery. That was sort of the main the main thrust of it. But just on the way by that um point uh it it really interesting to think about you know just in the age of uh automation and ai machine learning and all these things replacing there that's a really good example of like sure uh jean's (laughs) job might be replaced eventually by a computer but i mean how many people how many students or untrained professionals could this one person replace just by the monstrous amount of information and expertise that's housed in that brain like how much extra work would have you know, thousands of students for tens of thousands of hours to, to do that up. So just an appreciation for the actual human work that real human scientists do. Uh, just wanted to highlight that as well. All on, on that
2: point too, it's worth noting that the, that the the collection at the ROM of of the Burgess Shale is over two hundred thousand specimens. And they're all in old wooden drawers, <laughs> so you know it, it is all it it it, it is all analog. <laughs> like there's there's no there's, there's there's no computer where you where it's where there's no database that says well there's a claw that I think might fit on this new fossil here. It's all up there.
3: Right. And the other thing that's analog is the jackhammers that they carry up into the mountains <laughs> to get these things out of the rock. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, it is stunning. They're like mountain goats and construction workers.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the real, as we, as we teased there a little bit and, and uh, as Andrew uh, introduced a little bit, the real, um, the star of the show was the new discovery. So I don't, we don't want to ask you to give everything away, but perhaps we can just talk about what was so, so it was new, it hadn't been seen before. What, so what was so unique? I mean, in what way was it, was it new?
3: So it, literally what Andy said, a lot of the creatures that they've discovered in the shale are the size of your thumbnail or smaller. This is the size of, for me, two of my hands put together. So a large shield-shaped creature with spines sticking off of it. Um, It clearly would have been a very dominant part of the ecosystem, and yet they had never seen it before. And I've got to say, the thrilling part for me was at one point, John Bernard told us, everyone out here works. And so he handed me a rock to split open, and I found an intact mouth part from this thing, which is like a ring of teeth. I mean, it's amazing.
2: That's one of those moments, you know, when you when you're showing the film like this to uh, um, an audience and they'll go, "Oh, you fake that." You know, no, yeah. she found Not it. Not at all. I mean, I'm
3: still thrilled. I feel like I want to put my name on it, you
2: know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 the moment when John Bernard goes, "Oh, what if you go? whoa, you know, cuz what Maddie found was a round mouth full of like horrifying teeth. Like it's right out of a horror film, right? Yeah. There all these it's um like all these teeth crammed into a round mouth and you can just imagine them opening up and then and then just crushing a trilobite or something like that, so that that uh, that actually leads to the point too about you know when when they found the the main fossil of what they ended up calling the spaceship because it looks like a cross between the, the Enterprise and then the Millennium Falcon, but when they found it, it was basically a carapace, kind of kind of if you can imagine a flattened turtle shell, and um, then it was like okay, well what was underneath it? How did it move? What are all the other things it did? So you've got to look for those parts like the mouth um, that. Put the jigsaw puzzle all together. So, the, the you know, the first part of the story is collect these things in the field and identify them while you're there. But the real hard work starts when they get back here, just a just f- a few blocks from where we're sitting, where they start to put it all together in the lab. And it was amazing how fast they figured out th- what that thing looked like. And,
3: and it's already published. I mean, Jean Bernard's a machine. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: So I had the so uh, yeah this will have to be
3: the last question I'm afraid, but we're, uh,
1: it was a pleasure to have you we'll, we'll make sure we're in a second we'll go over and make sure everyone knows when they can catch this for themselves. Uh, my last question was, and again, I'm not sure if this was just a matter of uh, filmmaking or, or what but I did have one question that remained unanswered for me, which was we identified several times so there's two things you've actually given the pieces if they're paying attention our listeners will have caught on this mystery already, which was you've described how what was shocking and amazing about this creature was how large it was and yet as we're going through it, I won't spoil everything We get some clues that there almost certainly had to be even bigger things that we haven't found. Uh, and that was where I was like, but you're not going to tell me about the bigger thing. And I kind of felt like Andrew, you did that intentionally. So it was like, well, now I have to be a paleontologist. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, no, I mean, there is, there is one animal they found that is bigger, not on that site. And it's called the Anomalocaris. Um, and, um, it's, as Jean Bernard says, if, if it was alive today, you wouldn't want it bumping into your leg in the, in the lake. Like they're horrifying things. But, but yeah, we, I mean, the point about, about that there's bigger things is that the, the spaceship has this carapace to protect itself. So what's it protecting itself from? Yeah, yeah. And where's, some that, scary where's and that other monster out there that's going to come eat him? Yeah, yeah. and, and, and when, the eyes
3: are pointing up because it's looking for something, <laughs> right? That,
1: yeah. So I was like, yeah. the whole time we got to the end. It's like and, you know I'm starting to get sucked into it the way I'm I'm used to Hollywood, right? So I'm like, there's no reveal. Like at least <laughs> you could have done the Thanos at the end of the movie where like yo for next time. But no, there was nothing. You just left me hanging. <laughs> no, it.
2: but the for next for next time is the important part, right? Right. Now. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and well, they're still working on it. You, <laughs> you have to send Jean Bernard back. Yeah,
2: and then we have to go with him.
1: Well, you can check that out. Um, on Friday, October the 25th at 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, uh, there's also CBC uh, Gem free streaming service. Uh, the website is firstanimalsfilm.com. Did I miss anything?
2: No, and, and go right. to the website uh, First Animal Film. There's a ton on there. Yeah, uh, there's a ton of stuff on there.
1: Yeah. Uh, oh yes, yeah, so uh, it's part of the um, uh, nature of things, uh, I, as well on the CBC. And broadcast. one, and
2: one last thing, I just want to, I just want Please. to express that Maidie Ann had never uh, hosted a show like this before. And she's a natural and Aww. that's uh that's the, i think the main reason to watch so u of, u, of T's, u of T's own is a star in the making and uh so uh um yeah tune in because this is, is a lot of fun to say
3: that because not many people will climb up the mountain <laughs> so okay.
2: yeah. well we love our local experts
1: um so you're welcome to join us uh, anytime uh even uh, not on a film we thank love, you we love our scientists around here uh with that we are out of time so i'm going to go to our first music break when we come back you are released from my clutches and I've given you back to Stefan and Dave who are going to talk about some news which is probably far less jovial than the last 20 minutes have been but hey that's the way the world turns uh, we're going to listen now to what are we going to listen to oh right this was a Dave suggestion we're going to listen to mm-hmm. uh, Jerusalem by Billy Bragg I like I like saying that there are Dave selections ahead of time because I haven't screened them first <laughs> uh, and we're just going to see how that goes alright we'll be back in a few minutes folks you are listening to The Green Majority thank you so much and we'll talk to you real soon
0: Andy the I walk upon England's the Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1.
4: And welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or even on the podcast, which you can find on greenmajority.ca, along with all of the links uh, to all of the other shows. Uh, and previous shows, and also the you know, want to find out more information about the about the documentary or anything else we talk about in the show will be we link to in the show post. Um, but we do have an opportunity before we get to uh, to to Dave and and Sarah talking about some news. This is Steven Hostetter live in the studio. I do want to break some news. Uh, it's not breaking news. Breaking news.
1: De- de- I know. De- 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 de
4: can't go wrong with breaking news uh so again uh, this is our third time breaking news because we can break news exclusively when things happen between 11 and 12 on fridays uh so the third time uh, we've done this is that a ontario court has found that doug ford broke the law when he cut the cap and trade mm. uh, it uh, was just just announced uh two of the three ontario supreme court judges determined that the Ford government acted illegally when it killed the province's cap and trade carbon price without doing public consultation with Ontarians, as required by the Environmental Bill of Rights.
1: As this is breaking news, Stephen, do you do we have are, are there any details on on what next steps
4: could be? Or do we ha- do we know what that means, if anything? Uh, well, my my expectation is that they will they will bring this to a higher court. That this was not this was not the Supreme Court. This was the Superior Court. Right. Uh, but this is brought, brought brought by lawyers of Greenpeace Canada and Ecojustice brought this case last last year. It uh, yeah, was brought
0: quite a while ago, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it was that brought. Took a very immedi- long time.
4: It was immediately after it was done. Yeah, September
0: 2018.
4: Yeah. Um, and well, what's interesting on that, I, the reason I was specifically
1: what I'm interested in was, uh, as you probably were about to say that I interrupted you, was mm-hmm. that like this cost a lot of people a lot of money. Oh my God, yes. So if there is standing found, again, everyone knows, not a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, but it, you know, if they're found to have standing, like I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if someone's going to end up paying out a lot, and if it's going to end up be Ontarians, like if it's going to be taxpayers. <laughs> right. So I mean, uh, no matter who, no matter what happens, this is going to be interesting. But I, but boy, that could be really interesting. Yeah, politically speaking.
4: Yes, this ruling uh, has specifically do with whether or not they broke the environmental bill of rights. So I think that's sort of a specific rule. Um, uh, The the suit alleged that Rod Phillips, who was the environmental minister at the time, uh, did not quote do everything in his power to notify the public of the government's proposal to cancel this program and to allow the public to comment on it before for a period of at least thirty days before. the proposal is implemented uh so again what was great about this is that like it's a 30-day notification which they still somehow failed to deliver uh which of course is a, yeah, a bit of a shame but anyways uh let's let's go on to the actual news we want to cover which uh, which you now, if you want more information before i divvy off more information this is an article that was just released on national observer uh by fatima sayed who was on our show last week uh and so you want to read more about what's going on uh go there but now to California.
0: Yes, Doug Ford just continues to fail. Yes. But uh, who's also failing in California? We're about to find out. Well, everybody already knows. <laughs> the uh, So preemptive blackouts were doled out in central and northern California this week by the state's largest utility, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, since dry and windy conditions have been threatening to spark wildfires. The utility was found liable for one of the worst wildfires in California history last year, due to the poor upkeep of its power lines, which caused it to file for bankruptcy in January 2019. People are also being asked to be cautious in their daily activities since some of the wildfires last year were caused by human negligence. PG&E expected to gradually cut power to 2.5 million people earlier in the week. They began bringing power back on yesterday, but the whole process could take up to five days, and 300,000 people still remain without power. Classes have been canceled, people cleared the stores of batteries, generators, and other supplies, and some people were also being asked to minimize water usage. Out of fear of public retaliation, the utility actually put up barriers around its headquarters in San Francisco on Wednesday, and the LA Times reports that someone may have shot at a PG&E truck on Tuesday. California Governor Gavin Newsom has said that the blackouts are the result of mismanagement and greed. On the part of the utility. Thomas Fuller reports for the New York Times, quote, climate change, years of drought, and the construction of houses and communities in wildland areas have all contributed to the the spate of intense and deadly fires in California in recent years. In addition to electrical equipment, the direct causes of the fires have included lawnmowers, campfires, arson, and in one case, a man trying to plug a wasp's nest with a metal spike.
4: Uh, so, so, yeah. So, as, as I mentioned, uh, I, I specifically requested this uh, us to cover this topic because it, it covers a, a wide range of things that I think are important to highlight. And, and the first is that when we think about you know adaptation, uh, or when you know we covered a while ago when you we were covering the, the United States's presidential candidates' beliefs in in climate change and, and sort of how their missions were, and we sort of briefly talked about Andrew Yang uh, in his his remove moving people from coastal cities um, plan. And, and and these types of ideas that are consistently connected to climate adaptation, which is sort of moving people inland uh, away from away from places where they'd be where they'd be flooded out, that is only one part of this much wider range of things that are necessary. And and this is th- to cut off power to to to, to, to two point five million people, um, uh, and then you know currently I believe it's six hundred thousand is. And especially with almost no notice—that's the thing. This is not like this isn't like a thing where they ensured that everyone would have enough time to plan. They were waiting for winds to hit a certain range. Their meteorologists told them that it would happen at some point in time, and then they were like, "Okay, we're cutting all power." And this is a truly devastating thing to do to the to the people in that in that areas, especially the most vulnerable populations. And like, just imagine that there's a there's a few ways this hits people. First, if you are if you require Uh, If you require a medical device uh, that requires electricity and you live in this area, this is a matter of life or death. And and the response was just go to the emergency room, which – in you know some countries would be at least a some of an option, but in the United States, as, famous, as famously as is, it is, incredibly expensive to do that. And so this is basically saying pay thousands and thousands of dollars to survive because we didn't maintain our infrastructure well enough. And and that is unconscionable, right? Like th- this is just um, how how do you expect people? Who are living already on the margins to survive? If if what we're doing is is just with almost no notice, sending them into these types of things, the the, to the second sort of point, which I'll sort of bring bring into a, to a third thing, is that the the fact that we are sitting here with utilities being controlled by a private company, which which was proven like you know within this lawsuit to have been responsible for previous. Uh, you know some previous significant oversights that that led to the fires previously. I think it's 11 billion dollars they were charged to pay. Uh, as a quick aside, they were also blocked by the bankruptcy court for giving. I think it was something like a 65 million dollars of of bonuses to their to their uh, to their CEO, and oh, sorry, 16 million dollar bonuses to the to its top executives. As if like that was a reasonable thing to do while you had to pay out 11 billion dollars for lighting fires all over the place, and yet. Both of these things. So here's this here's this thing, which, you know, we constantly get this idea that private industry is the way to ensure that things are done efficiently uh, or better. And and yet when you when private industry starts bumping up against things like, oh, it's way cheaper for us to just cut off power to a million people than to effectively protect our, our our transportation lines or private industry means that the people who are most vulnerable and affected by this cannot go to somewhere else to protect themselves because there's no infrastructure to receive them or protect them both of these things are are clear indications that our current system is not designed to survive this and and that to me is 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 a huge takeaway like one of the if if one of the things we have to do is is change our energy grid a big part of that will have to be, I think, the government stepping up and in, in, in retaking over some of these utilities that are clearly failing to, to serve uh, the general public. You know, the fact that PG&E can, outside, can its own decision basically remove power from, from a million people and there's nothing the government of California can do is a pretty strong indictment of where we are.
1: Sorry, just a, a perfect opportunity for my soapbox. I'll be brief. Uh, this is just yet another example of the: if you think companies should are best to regulate themselves and and government should just gets in the way, great. You can explain to me why slavery is illegal. Oh, right. It's because if it wasn't, these companies would use it. They have no. They're amoral, not immoral. They're amoral and they're machines designed for one purpose, which is maximize profit. And if that profit maximization means throwing people under the bus, letting them get sick, putting your costs onto other people, all of those things, those are all permissible. So I don't want to hear from people. I don't want to hear it anywhere. I don't want to see it. And don't let your politicians
4: say it. Companies cannot and should not regulate themselves. We know this. It's factual end of story. Uh, before I go to the back to Dave for the for this next story about things, I would last thing I want to point out very quickly is this is also an important understanding of the difference between hard path and soft path energy. You know the fact that these massively long power lines are at risk to being blown over. The, the big fire risk here is that trees will be blown over to power lines. Power lines supposed to be active and will light fires. The the longer the power lines you have, the more brittle and and uh, at risk you are for for this type of thing. And so the more that you can have s- s- soft path smaller smaller power lines or honestly there's so much power currently on solar power in california but most of it goes back to the grid rather than cycling it onto the actual house itself and anything that reduces these distances and the amount of power lines necessary is part of this adaptation method as well so there's like these types of things that serve multiple purposes that we need to pay attention to um yeah so again this is the sort of story that doesn't sort of flying under the radar a little bit, in part because it's just odd, but I think is an indication of the world we live in. But let's move on to to the debates.
0: So author and journalist Chris Turner has written a piece for the National Observer about this week's Canadian Federal Leaders uh, debate, in which he analyzes the statements made about climate by the various parties. He laments the absurdity and shallowness of the debate, in which the climate deniers in, in the People's Party called themselves the only real environmentalist party. But he also writes, quote, For the first time that I can recall, the federal leader's debate could be accurately described as being fully saturated in discussion of climate change. Although he says that the conversation was superficial, he mentions some meaningful exchanges between the Greens, the Liberals, and the NDP. He quotes Green leader Elizabeth May as telling Trudeau, quote, Your target is a commitment to failure. That's why it's so doable and achievable. Turner then points out that Trudeau's party has managed since 2015 to narrow our margin of projected 2030 failure by 221 megatons of carbon, and implied that the Green Party is not prepared to face the ire of oil and gas workers who are already so upset by a mere $30 per ton carbon tax. But Turner doesn't say how much the carbon tax is actually making people's lives harder, thereby ignoring the deceitful politics behind the drummed up anger against it. He writes of May's plan to cut emissions by 60% by 2030, quote, Do the workers respond to this by, filling, by filing dutifully through retraining programs, in time to become solar panel electricians and insulation installers and heat pump technicians ready to retrofit every building in Canada for net zero emissions, all by 2030? Does all that just tidally happen under the Green Plan? Or does the Prime Minister perhaps have a point when he says that a target is not a plan? Turner then highlights the NDP line against the Liberals' oil and gas subsidies, and how they are returning carbon tax rebates to big polluters for fear that those polluters might just relocate to places without a carbon tax. He mentions that the NDP, while railing against the Liberals' purchase of Trans Mountain expansion and their billions in oil and gas subsidies, have not stated that they plan to make things like aviation and agriculture much more expensive which he says would result from ending fossil fuel subsidies. Turner finishes by saying that any of the parties at all left of center will bring stronger climate policy in the coming years. What he doesn't say, in his wittily measured tone, is that no one in these leaders' debates seems willing to question the fundamental legitimacy of holding environmental debates while these prospective leaders refuse to recognize the genocidal whitewashing of this environment and its inhabitants' environmental knowledge that has paved the way for such debates.
4: Yeah, I, I think this highlights actually the one thing I was hoping to squeeze into the show uh, last week, but but failed to, which is that it it does feel like the debate between the the you know I'll say three plans that are that are real plans, is is a debate between a. Uh, succeeding at a plan that will not get us there, which is sort of what May was highlighting with the liberal plan. You know, you you will definitely like, can you do the liberal plan? Yes. Does that make, does that that meet our Paris agreements? No. Do the Paris agreements actually go far enough? Still no. So you're sort of at this point, like failing to meet the thing that's Mm -hmm. failing to meet the thing, Mm -hmm. you know, whether or not that decreases emissions, which it does is, is opens question. But I think an important thing to reference that you're, you're, it's, it's, Twice failing in some capacity, Um, the and yet and then and then the question with the you know with with the with the NDP plan as we mentioned last year uh, and or last week and the Green plan, uh, but really the NDP plan more so is is what jurisdictional abilities do these do these places have to to address these issues Mm. and and that is a that is a real problem you know unquestionably a, a like really especially if you look at, at at how much power provinces actually have there is really not that many abilities for the for the federal government to have to really push uh, Ways to deal with this, you know, there's the given how much control is in, of energy and resource use is in the provinces. The federal government has this tax, has taxation with, with with an option, and obviously can then provide incentives with money raised from taxation. You know, similar to what we are currently seeing with with healthcare, uh, but but generally speaking, there's again they still don't actually have a ton of actual control. However, um, in 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 my the, the which is why the question for me is. You know, do we so those these types of big plans that really fundamentally reshape our society are are going to be hard and and might be might be very difficult to pull off. But the question I have is, would you rather be failing at a plan uh, that will get us somewhere or succeeding at a plan that won't? And and I think that's. You know and, and I, both again, as Turner mentioned all, all the three major parties that actually have a plan will reduce emissions with their plans uh they will you will see a relative you you will see a reduction regardless of who uh, of those three are are in some way in power and and yet this central question of 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 how do we as a society want to deal with it and how have we as a society do want to think about it is is to me the question that still remains unanswered because to me you know the, I feel like a lot, there's a lot of energy, you know, we saw it two weeks ago at the March of people, there's like a million people hit the streets in Canada saying we want to be doing something. And I think if you could leverage those million people to be like, okay, here is the grand, like, here is the actual target we need to hit. Here is this plan and how everyone is involved in that work. To me, that is the only path forward, Uh, you know, and whether or not, and, 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 that, that everyone has to get on board and, you know, as, as Chris Turner mentions it, like things like we aren't talking about aviation. as, as long as these governments are avoiding talking about aviation and, and, and food, we are not still having a conversation that really admits to where we're at. You know, the food will cost more. We have to find a way to ensure people are not hurt by that. And flying is, will be like subsidies on flying is a huge percentage of the fossil fuel subsidies. Mm-hmm. And so these kinds of questions have to be a part of the conversation. And so
0: yeah, a lot of people are going to have to pay a lot more.
4: Yeah. And, and we have to find a way to make that transition in a way that does not hurt the most vulnerable and keeps us living in a way that is, uh, you know, that, that people, that people can find meaning and enjoy in. And I think the, but that requires a shift in actual thought, like it requires, I think a shift in our, in our brain space, but I won't get too deep into it because I do want to have enough time to get to our last segment. Uh, so let's, let's throw over to a music break and then we'll go from there.
2: Their fathers. Some the
4: bodies Stand in the mirror and wait for the feedback Saying, ah, make me famous. If you can, just make it famous
0: And welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT89.5 FM, or one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners, or on Greenmajority.ca, where our podcast is. Um, yes, so this is our final segment, and Stefan.
4: <clears throat> yes.
0: We're going to uh, discuss um, a hard left opinion,
4: <laughs> quite hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: On uh, on the climate movement.
4: Yeah, I um I have yeah we're we're gonna we're you know I think it's this is important. for this is for our socialist friends. Exactly, I think it's important to address uh, or to look at some of the uh, the maybe stronger or f- further left critiques. We usually talk about you know critiques from the right, so let's 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 take on one from the far left.
0: So, independent uh, journalist Corey Morningstar is greatly concerned about climate change, but also concerned about the close ties between corporations, large NGOs, and environmental groups, which she argues can serve to sell the movement out to powerful capitalists and turn the environmental movement into a tool wielded by oligarchs to cling to their power and perpetuate the system that is destroying the planet and exploiting the lower classes. She argues, for instance, in a long piece called The Manufacturing of Greta Thunberg, That the modern climate movement has, over the last 10 years, served as a social engineering campaign, playing on our legitimate emotions about the global climate crisis in order to ensure the continuation of patriarchal white capitalist dominance. She argues that Greta Thunberg, while well meaning, has been swept up into a global network of NGO greenwashing that merely wants to figure out how to maintain the capitalist system, for instance, by, advancing, by advocating for a green energy transition run by corporations that will turn huge profits off mineral and labor exploitation in the global south. Her position seems to be that any green movement that attempts to leverage finance is not tackling the real issues of militarism, wealth disparity, waste, and consumerism. <clears throat> she writes, quote, We don't have time to stop imperialist wars, wars being the greatest contributor to climate change and environmental degradation by far. But we must do so. Of course, this is an impossible feat under the crushing weight of the capitalist system, a U.S. war economy, and the push for a fourth industrial revolution founded on renewable energy. Yet, inconvenience has nothing to do with necessity in regards to addressing a particular situation. What is never discussed in regard to the so-called clean energy revolution is that its existence is wholly dependent on green imperialism, the latter term being synonymous with blood. Thus she is even against Extinction Rebellion, one of the most directly radical contemporary green movements, since they strategically bypass the extremely political hard-left groups and extreme intersectionalists to go right to the general non-political larger populace, in order to ensure that the climate movement doesn't get bogged down by people who want it to be perfect in every way. Morningstar views this as XR being against real radical resistance, while XR would say that it is merely practical. She posts a video in which Roger Hallam says that we need to move past the people who argue that we can't have a movement unless we all agree that capitalism must be dismantled from day one, because then we won't get anywhere. She quotes him as saying, quote, all the most effective movements have a central concept, and that concept is balance. Balance the pragmatic need and the ethical imperative to change society versus the need to be eternally ethical. Morningstar, of course, uses this as evidence that XR has been compromised from the beginning and is in fact perpetuating capitalist social engineering. She writes, quote, This, in essence, forms the key strategy of Extinction Rebellion, to isolate radical voices and to dominate the narrative while targeting the non-practical and pragmatic. Uh, Non-practical? Maybe political? I don't know. She says, A narrative and an orchestrated campaign that serves the ruling class. To give a faux sense of inclusion, while mocking those who have, first and foremost, an allegiance to the earth. Framing those who recognize that the very capitalist system destroying all life on our finite planet will not and cannot be magically reformed to save us as political absolutists, the deliberate framing of those that do not conform as obstructive is effective social engineering. She concludes, quote, for XR leadership, the enemy of rebellion is not corporate dominance such as Utilever or Volans. The enemy of rebellion is not the capitalist system devouring everything in its path. The enemy of rebellion is the radical activist prepared to defend the earth by any means necessary. She also holds that nonviolent resistance is not necessarily the most effective strategy. But as I mentioned at the beginning, the main part of her argument against the modern climate movement is that it is being run by elites whose motivations are simply to find new markets for a capitalist system that is collapsing under its own weight. She argues that because certain major figures in Extinction Rebellion have connections with societal elites, they must really not be for the people. But in doing so, she ignores the main tenet of XR, which is to create democratic citizens' assemblies made up of ordinary people that will decide what to do. She also argues that because Greta Thunberg was championed early on by financial investment consultant turned social, uh, green social media entrepreneur Ingmar Rensog, Greta herself has been from the beginning a puppet of the capitalist class. Rensog, however, sold his previous business in order to go into his much less lucrative green social media startup called We Don't Have Time, which Thunberg served as a youth advisor for and then left pretty quickly. Still, for Morningstar, all this combined with Greta's subsequent rise to international stardom and her story's predictable appropriation by whatever corporation wants to talk about her to make themselves feel like they're a part of the movement pretty much proves that Greta is merely a tool who will, be, who will be thrown away when the elites no longer have use for her. In any case, Morningstar makes a good point that ostensibly well-meaning NGOs often serve to mask colonial domination with a deceitful smile. She posts a clip of Arundati Roy talking about NGOs back in 2004, who concedes that there are NGOs doing valuable work, but in a broader context, NGOs are often brought in to do the necessary social work that the government is no longer doing, only in a much weaker way, and are financed by the very same entities that call for global cuts in government spending. Roy says, quote, NGOs give the impression that they're filling the vacuum created by a retreating state, and they are, but in a materially inconsequential way. Their real contribution is that they diffuse political anger and dole out as aid or benevolence what people ought to have by right. It's almost as if the greater the devastation caused by neoliberalism, the greater the outbreak of NGOs. The capital available to NGOs plays the same role in alternative politics as the speculative capital that flows in and out of the economies of poor countries. It begins to dictate the agenda. It turns confrontation into negotiation. It depoliticizes resistance. It interferes with local people's movements that have been traditionally self-reliant. The NGOization of, of politics threatens to turn resistance into well-mannered, reasonable, salaried nine-to-five jobs with a few perks thrown in. But real resistance has real consequences and no salary. End quote. But the weakest parts of Morningstar's argument are her contentions that any modern group is useless, if it has anything to do with rich people at all, and that there is a conspiracy to financialize all of nature a notion that she fails to define. She notes that there is a homogenous ruling class made up of rich white men who simply want to ensure the continuation of unfettered capitalism and that anyone having to do with these people at all is already pacified.
4: Yeah. So so why are we why why are we covering this is a is a question. And I think the the answer in part is as I mentioned at the top, it's important to sort of understand what the criticisms of, of of action from the from the left look like. And I think we, we covered another criticism uh, of the Green New Deal uh, from the left a few months ago. And in both of them, I think hinge on on a particularly, uh, uh, both of them come at the, with a series of problems. And I and I will say that the I I, re, I remain to believe that the biggest question I have about what about, about a Green New Deal and, the, and efforts towards that is how you do so in a way that includes protections for uh, for those who are living in places where where the mining who are mining the materials necessary for this work. Uh, I think there is a I think you have to there, there needs to be an international uh, conversation and thought around what it looks like to have that many batteries being produced and that much solar and that much and things like that like, like these are important questions that have to be addressed in a way to ensure that you're not just, you know, uh, switching from one type of exploitation to another. I think that is a necessary question to have. However, uh, the, the, what consistently frustrates me about, about this criticism and other criticisms that I've heard is that they sort of list a laundry list of problems they actually have, and then are I believe in the article their solution is to cull the rich. I believe that was the, a,
0: that was a tweet. Oh, it was a tweet. So okay. I, I tried okay. to garner uh, her larger position.
4: Oh, okay. All right. Um, but, but, but I, what I mean is there's, there was, there, there's no further plan beyond everyone else doing this is doing it wrong. And, and therefore we should just do something else.
0: of the military industrial complex call right. the rich stop waste and consumerism.
4: Yes. Right. Uh, but, and, and yet those are, those are not plans. You know that's not, that is not actually doing anything, and and this is the frustration I have so consistently with 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 the the sort of naysaying on uh, that that comes often from from the from the from the far left, which is the idea that any interaction with society is proof that you are complicit in society, and therefore you cannot do better, and and that is. And that is a constant uh, reality that, that, that we live in. And, and so when you, when, when, you, when you take something like the last 10 years of very intentional building up of, 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 of coalition and, and of, of power that the environmental movement has, 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 has very much invested in, in doing a fair amount of, of, of real work to, 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 to build a much wider base to bring everyone up with them um, to, as, a, as a, quote, social engineering campaign as if that sort of just wipes out the, the validity of the work is, is to me a, uh, a mistake. And, and if we're going to succeed, uh, I think we have to start thinking about, you know, what actually needs to get done. You know, the, the thing about this, what, what frustrates me often is the idea that everyone doing something is doing it wrong. But me, who's not doing anything, uh, or at least certainly not making a moving movement that's really changing the world, is doing it right. And, and that doesn't make sense to me. The 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 work that I want I want to I want to tie this to is a is a, is a theory of how to change the world, and it it's called emergent strategy. Uh, Anne Marie Brown wrote uh, wrote a book uh, about it. Um, it. It was she based a lot of that off of um, a lot of that off of Octavia Butler's work previously. Um, she's an author activist, uh, Emory Brown is an author, activist, social justice facilitator, healer, and doula who lives in Detroit. Um, and, you know, has been on the ground in significant movements like black lives matter, occupy wall street. You know, this is a person who understands how to shift power and how to build power. And, and so this book emergent strategy is, is all about, about her suggestions as to how to build a movement. And there are sort of nine core principles. and uh, The first is small is good. And small is all uh, that the large that the large is a reflection of the small. So that she talks often about the idea that you can that building deep relationships uh, is, uh, is 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 impo- is is as important, if not more important than a wide relationships. You know, like and it, it, the the idea that having individual strong relationships is, is is so important for me building. The second is change is constant. Be like water. and And that to me is this example of like. Get out and start trying to do something and then adapt. Don't don't sit back and, 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 and criticize everyone trying to do something if you yourself are not engaging in in, in the work itself um, and, and accept that your strategy might always have to change. That so You will have to keep doing different things.
1: As as we listeners of the show will know, my personal motto is don't complain unless you have a better idea. (laughs)
4: Um, uh, The third is uh, there is always enough time for the right work. There is a conversation in the room that these people at this moment can have and find it. Uh, And and, and, and the, the fourth is never a failure, always a lesson. The fifth, trust the people. If you trust the people, they become trustworthy. The sixth is move at the speed of trust. The seventh is focus on the critical connections more than critical mass. Build the resilience by building the relationships. The eighth is less prep, more presence. And the ninth is what you pay attention to grows. And and to me, this 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 article and these criticisms, and, and honestly, a, a part of this of, of 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 the of the of the left wing movement is all prep and no presence. And 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 clearly in this in this sort of screed, the idea that trust is 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 important is, is like is lost. You you cannot come out with an article an like this and and pretend and and hope that other people will trust you at this point. You're 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 doing nothing to build trust between groups. Uh, in fact, you're actively sowing disillusionment between groups and distrust. And and so. You know, when we think about what the what, when you think about the movements out there, right now that are that are trying to trying to move this thing forward, you know, uh, that are trying to find the ways to have these conversations, that are trying to find ways to to to, to, to trust each other, it is uh, that is I think what we actually have seen in the past ten years of the environmental movement has been sort of a shift actually away from uh, you know the very very NGOified say '90s. And not to say there still isn't this version of this, but I think it's it, 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 you've seen some shifts uh, towards a a much uh, a much broader coalition that has moved at the speed of trust. You know, when when the when the Jobs Justice Climate March occurred, uh, say three four I think it's three or four years ago here, it was it was a, it was a sort of a, a, an early attempt for the environmental movement to to bring uh, to bring justice, uh, especially justice for for indigenous uh, communities that are on the front lines. Uh, and and unions and uh, union rights together uh, to to sort of really begin this conversation about uh, about a, a Green New Deal. You know, it wasn't that wasn't the language at the time, but the sort of idea that you needed this broad base and and that took and that was and that's an action of building trust. Like as you bring together these movements, you have to slowly build the trust between all of them and you have to show up at other rallies. This is a call that happens pretty consistently um, in in, in places that sort of understand if you want people to show up to 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 your rally, you have to show up uh, to theirs. And so this less prep, more presence thing, I think, is is incredibly key. You know if you're if you're sitting at your computer writing a two thousand page blog word blog post about why no one is doing anything, maybe leave that and just go to the mo- the closest no one is a legal rally and show up and and stand in solidarity with the work that's being done. Uh, I guarantee you that will do more than your blog post and and so I think it's this it's this type of understanding and it, it sort of flips it. It, it 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 brings it to a conversation of can we be Gentle with each other and trust each other enough. To, to to always absorb whatever is next and to move forward and to and to you know be like water to absorb what is coming and and, and, and actually accept it and then move towards uh, a better future with whatever has just happened and this these this this process i think really allows you to be a much more long live much longer or the, the move, movement has much more longevity but it also is a much deeper set a deeper change and i think that's the that's the way forward um, and so, uh, I, 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 highly recommend the book, uh, Emergency strategy. And I, uh, very much, uh, think that what we've seen is, is a, is a start and I, and, and I hope we can keep moving forward. And if you are again, going to write a 2000 page blog post, uh, maybe instead just go show up somewhere. Yes, certainly not 2000 pages, which you've said again. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not, there was a, uh, it's a, lo- it's a long
0: it's a long post. long thing and it's elucidating a larger stream of thought which right. is which is like you know okay if you're if you're like water at what point are you too lenient you know well, at what think, point are you too giving in
4: yeah i i i, I don't know i i reject that uh <laughs> that concept uh but we will go to the music break oh, sorry music break, it's the end of the show it's 12 o'clock so have a wonderful week but- everyone
1: yeah, the, the music break we're going to enjoy is our extra theme. <laughs> That's a great um, song. Yeah, uh, here we go with that. Thanks for listening, everyone.